0: So, Jay, are all the brood evil?
1: Evil might be a stretch, Miles. It's not like they're setting out to maximize suffering, just, you know, eating and assimilating their way through the universe.
0: Mm, Fair point. Antagonistic, then.
1: The overwhelming majority are, both by nature and because they typically weed out and kill any outliers. In fact, I can only think of six exceptions, and that's not just in, in the main universe, that's in the entire multiverse.
0: How did those six survive?
1: Well, in 616, of course, there's the adorable and erudite Brew, who was essentially rescued by sword.
0: Right, right. And the others? Are they his multiversal counterparts?
1: No, all five of them are actually on Earth-92131.
0: So what's their deal?
1: They're a superhero team. WHAT?! I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men.
0: Because it's about time someone did.
1: Welcome to episode 331 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: And welcome to a very special day of the year, at least as we record this, not as you hear it.
1: That's right, you're going to hear this a couple weeks later, but... Today, as we record this, it is April 13th, and that means that it is our seventh anniversary. We have been doing this. We have been explaining the X-Men professionally for seven freaking years. Seven years! How did that even happen? Seven years
0: ago today, we released episode one, sitting upstairs in the Roseway Theater in that makeshift podcast studio that was home to so many Portland podcasts at the time, working with Bobby Roberts not having any idea what we were doing. It's, it's been a ride. It has. And I'm, Jay, I am so glad we're still doing this. I'm so glad we're doing this bizarre, fun, wonderful, silly project together.
1: Likewise. This is, this is, yeah, still going in. There's still a lot to explain, so I'm gonna go ahead and say here's to the next seven.
0: Here's to the next seven. Hopefully only four or five of them will be Onslaught.
1: Ooh. We're actually taking a bit of a break from the, the looming onslaught this week to look at a mini-series, X-Men versus Brood, but first I feel like we should talk a little bit about both the series and the Brood in general and what their deal is.
0: Well, okay, so the Brood, that is Brood X or Brood 10, are a whole bunch of cicadas that have been underground for 17 years, and soon they're going to emerge and yell at the sun.
1: Good for them.
0: I actually am really pleased that uh, this is lining up with an actual plague of cicadas called Brood X. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm sure it's going to be very challenging agriculturally and stuff, but it's a fun little link, you know?
1: I feel like crawling out to yell at the sun is is a motivation I deeply identify with. Right? But those those aren't the brood that we're talking about today. What's, what's the deal with those brood?
0: Oh boy, so... We're going to cover a lot of this as it comes up, but the short version is, the Brood are the aliens from Alien. I mean, not exactly, but that's clearly their inspiration. In the Marvel Universe, the Brood are a race of creepy and sectoid aliens that go across the universe and put their embryos inside people, turn those people gradually into Brood themselves, who then go and make more Brood and more Brood and more Brood.
1: And they take on the characteristics of any, any group they assimilate. They're a hive mind. And that's really important. That's going to tie in pretty closely during this story. So the miniseries we're talking about today, um, technically, I, I said we were going to skip Onslaught. This did technically come out during Onslaught, but it takes place before. So we're going to ignore Onslaught as we discuss this, co- this comic.
0: That's not a privilege we'll have for very much longer.
1: And God, are we going to embrace it while we can. Which brings us to X-Men vs. Brood Day of Wrath Part 1, written by John Ostrander, penciled by Brian Hitch, inked by Paul Neary, colored by Joe Roses, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Kamacraft. And I
0: will always talk up John Ostrander, although I'm not saying this is a perfect work by him, but I always enjoy his work. And interestingly, I found something out while we were researching this episode, which is that he went to school for theology in hopes of becoming a Catholic priest. He ended up not doing so and is now agnostic, but he's got a great deal of Christianity in his background, and that's going to actually tie into this miniseries.
1: We're going to get to that more as we go on. Um, yeah, this is a weird one for me. I really dig the basic premise. I like the story, but oof, the dialogue and the panel-to-panel writing are rough. Maybe it's just
0: because I have read so many comics across so many genres of so many levels of quality, but it didn't really jump out at me. Now, to be fair, you're a writer, I'm not, I'm sure that's part of it, but for me, overall, I really liked this miniseries.
1: I mean, I think it's also the fact that the animated series doesn't really live rent-free in my brain the way it does in yours. And that's the thing that really struck me about the dialogue in here, it feels tonally ripped straight out of the animated series, not... In necessarily a positive way. Um, and there, panel to panel, there are just there are just a lot of issues with dialogue and continuity that bugged me.
0: Well, that's fair. But let's talk about the other side. Let's talk a little about the arg. You mentioned we have Brian Hitch on pencils and Paul Neary on inks. Right. And I really like them, especially together. I've seen Paul Neary certainly many times inking Alan Davis, who has a somewhat similar style to Hitch, and just like Neary's a great match for Davis, he's a great match for Hitch.
1: Yeah, they're a good combination, and Hitch is, I think, a very good fit for this particular story, too. Agreed,
0: yeah. Uh, Hitch is good at drawing relatively realistic visuals, clearly very comic booky, including when those visuals are bizarre and supernatural and impossible, like The Brood.
1: So, there's something incredibly specific that I appreciate about Hitch. He's good in general, but this is something that very, very few artists do— He has characters' hair move relative to what they're doing. That's
0: really true, yeah. I mean, they don't all have personal breezes like Ryu from Street Fighter.
1: But, like, Sam's hair is plastered down when he's blasting, for instance.
0: Yeah, And there's this one scene uh, during one of the fight scenes later on that we'll get to where it's raining very hard and you see everybody's hair just plastered to their face. And not only is it realistic, but it also adds to the sense of the fight just being overwhelming and exhausting. So it kind of works thematically as well as just literally realistically.
1: And that's something that you might not pay attention to, but if you look, it's something that— very, very, very few superhero artists did, and very few superhero artists do. And so it's something that always kind of sticks out to me when someone bothers.
0: Yeah, it's like in a video game, where after your character walks through a lake, they'll actually be wet, like their clothing will look wet. It just adds to the sense of immersion.
1: So, these are this is a pair of double-sized issues. Um, we both read it on Marvel Unlimited, and neither of us has a physical copy, so we're not sure whether... These, these had a cardstock or foil cover, but it seems likely given when it came out.
0: It really does. Talking about the covers as well, so we see Jean Grey going by Phoenix these days on each cover, and on each one she looks so surprised at the brood that she's facing. I mean, okay, fair enough, Jean has never herself encountered the brood. She wasn't in any previous brood stories, but you'd think she would have at least heard of them. So,
1: just the surprised by brood is taking me in a really specific tangential direction. I've been watching oh, yeah. a lot of Third Rock from the Sun lately because it's on Tubi, and it's a fantastic show, and it's a show that actually really holds up the second time through. Um, but one of my favorite gags in one of the episodes involves um, Sally, who's, who's one of the alien characters, trying to take pinup photos, and so looking through a bunch of them and realizing as she does one of the common characteristics that she finds in them, which is absolutely true if you look, is that they are women who look incredibly surprised by their boobs. <laughs> like they're just they, they you know? it's like they it's like they were just hanging out and they see them and they're shocked. Who put those there? No, and it's it's one of those it's one of those things that's funny because it's absolutely true. It's it's like the the it's like the I didn't realize John Wayne walked like that gag in in Birdcage where it's like, "Oh, yes, yes, he does." Um <laughs> but anyway, that's what surprised by brood takes me to.
0: I'm really glad we took this little journey, Jay.
1: That and Surprised by Joy by C.S. Lewis, but I feel like that's a real different tangent.
0: I have very complicated feelings about C.S. Lewis, yeah. Although, I guess some of those feelings are relevant to this surprisingly Christian story. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's talk a little about what this story builds on.
1: So this story largely concerns Hannah Conover. Remember her? If your answer is no, that's reasonable, because Hannah first and only appeared in a 1988 story that ran from Uncanny X-Men 232 to 234. For some sense of scale relative to this podcast, we covered that story in episode 95, which came out in 2016.
0: That was... Oh man, that was a long time ago. Oh man, we've been doing the show for a long time.
1: It's been a minute, yeah. So, in that story, the Brood had infected all of the mutants in a small New Mexico town and put together their own kinda supervillain team, and... The X-Men saved the Reverend William Conover and his on-the-road religious movement, the Glory Day Ministry, from the Brood, which earned them, and mutants in general, Conover's trust and support, making William Conover, as far as I know, the only radically pro-mutant evangelist in the Marvel Universe.
0: And of course, those issues of Uncanny were written by Chris Claremont— the same guy, famously known for writing "God Loves, Man Kills," featuring the truly horrible person Reverend William Stryker. So I don't know. It's kind of cool that you have both ends of the spectrum religiously there, written by the same writer. That Claremont doesn't just have you know only one very narrow take on the concept of Christianity or even evangelical Christianity.
1: Yeah, Conover's cool. He is. He, I, I feel like he would he would go in the like Jubilee Partners category for me.
0: Yeah, and I feel like we should also point out. It's not just that he was grateful to mutants for saving his ministry from being attacked by aliens. Even before then, he was talking to his wife about how, you know, it really sucks the way society treats mutants. They're just people like the rest of us. They're all God's children. We should all be bros. Except he said it more spiritually. I don't know if preachers talk about how people should all be bros. Maybe they should.
1: So William's wife is Hannah Conover. And Hannah, when we first met her, had severe, severe debilitating arthritis. The last time we saw her, She was being offered a cure by Josie Thomas, a paramedic whom we the readers knew to be infected by the brood.
0: So that was 1988.
1: Fast forward to 1996, when Ostrander and Hitch pick up the dangling plot thread that is Hannah for a story that will leave her once again a dangling plot thread.
0: Hey, if you're good at something, you stick with it. Hannah Conover is very good at being a dangling plot thread.
1: Okay, so as this story begins, Hannah Conover has made a name for herself as a faith healer. What she's actually been doing is infecting parishioners with further brood embryos, all of which are slavishly loyal to her.
0: Because Hannah is a brood queen. Now, to expand on what we discussed earlier, the brood are an insect-like hive mind, and like many types of insects, they have queens. Queens are the ones that reproduce. So if you have a brood queen embryo in you, you're one of the brood that can make more brood.
1: However, thanks to Hannah's faith and her general stubbornness, she's managed to resist wholesale transformation. She's been able to hang on to some degree of her humanity that's usually impossible, and lately she's been pushing back, sort of reasserting her humanity and refusing to implant any further embryos.
0: And this is a big deal. I mean, in the previous big two brood stories we've seen—the one we just referenced and then the brood saga before that— Wolverine was able to fight off her brood infection because A, he's got a healing factor, and B, he's a very popular character. But this is almost unheard of, and so far it's been very unheard of for humans.
1: Well, it's pretty much unheard of for the brood, too, and the brood empress, who is the queen of all the queens, is extremely displeased. She communicates to Hannah that... This will not stand, and if Hannah doesn't fall in line, she's going to send some extra murderous brood called the Firstborn to kill Hannah if she doesn't fall in line.
0: This lack of aggression will not stand, man. So, I love the way, specifically, the art team, Hitch and Neary, portray this. Because the first few pages are this kind of dream message that Hannah gets from the Brood Empress... And the images of the brood flying in their weird, fleshy ships through space and showing them with this enslaved world of human-like people. These images are terrifying. Like, they are legit science fiction horror. And it honestly, I think, helps make Hannah more sympathetic despite her horrible, horrible actions of infecting people with embryos, she's clearly overwhelmed by this entire intergalactic society of monsters just telepathically pushing on her to do this thing. Also, weirdly, this story is the only appearance, as far as I could find, of the Brood Empress ever. And she doesn't even appear, she just has, like, a telepathic message in a dream for Hannah. You'd think with an alien race as frequently portrayed as the brood, their empress would be a bigger deal. I don't know. I mean, clearly Hickman has a lot in mind for brood stuff. There's been a recent brood story, so maybe soon. But let's hear from the seldom seen brood empress herself.
1: He hates us, hates us, and always.
0: Okay, two things. One, goddamn, Jay. It's like if Feral was 10,000 times more evil and also a bug.
1: Oh, that voice is so much less painful to do than Feral's. Sounded pretty painful.
0: Uh, okay, and second thing more of the first thing. Ugh. But third thing this is interesting because what the Brood Empress is basically saying is that the brood are hated and feared. And we've definitely heard that phrase before. It is fascinating that the brood are being portrayed as kinda sorta akin to mutants, or at least mutants who react very differently to their oppressors.
1: Well, and as we alluded to in the cold open, that's an analogy that's going to be explored at more length and you know, in more depth than the series X-Men 92, where you actually see the brood equivalent of the X-Men.
0: I love X-Men 92. I, I mean, okay, obviously we're biased because we're in the miniseries that led into it. Of course we're biased, but it's great. It takes everything that made the cartoon awesome, continues with it being cartoon style, and continues with the awesome.
1: Oh, it's so damn good. I read a bunch of it while I was working on that cold open, and it's just, it's brilliant. It's so good.
0: Also really funny. I appreciate really funny.
1: And just, it's it's one of those, like, incredibly, incredibly good, incredibly synchronous creative teams. Like, the, the writing and art is so, works together so beautifully.
0: Uh listeners, if you have a chance, I'm pretty sure it's on Marvel Unlimited by this point. Uh, it's worth your time.
1: It is. Well,
0: anyway, we're not talking about X-Men 92 now. I mean, we're not talking about it as much as we're talking about this X-Men versus Brood series. So, back to Alien stuff.
1: Right. Now, we know what's going on, all the stuff with the Empress, all the stuff with Hannah because on a vacation at the Grand Canyon, Jean Grey picks up on the Hannah Brood frequency in a dream. So Jean and Scott are there. They're on vacation with Jean's parents and niece and nephew. Only we, we see bits of them as she telepathically checks in on them, and for some reason her parents have their own at-home bedding. Um, I don't know. It's weird.
0: Oh, they, they bring that with them everywhere, like to work, to church, into the bathroom. It, it gets kind of awkward, but I, everyone's just used to it at this point. It's really easiest just not to bring it up.
1: So, Gene and Scott decide they're going to go off in search of this renegade queen, and they call in the other X-Men for backup. So, quick roll call. Who's going to be showing up in this story?
0: Okay, well, we have Storm, we have Wolverine...
1: And his bullshit font.
0: Yeah, so Wolverine is devolving at this point in the story. We hear more about that in his own series, but he's becoming more and more animalistic.
1: And his word balloons are supposed to express this... And the way they're mainly expressing it is by being harder to read, and I am not a fan.
0: Maybe he's really hard to understand. He's just like, I'm the best producer of what I do, Bob. <laughs> I guess he's also a stereotypical drunk, I don't know.
1: Yeah, no. Anyway, with the team also is Bishop.
0: And we have Gambit, and we have
1: Beast. Got Iceman, and finally Cannonball. And this is this is one of the places where you know, I mentioned it feels written a lot like the animated series. And one of those one of the things that, that kind of makes me say that is the ways that characters and their relationships are are oversimplified. So this is very, very much Cannonball as the wide eyed newcomer kid to the team.
0: And we've certainly talked about our frustrations with that in this era, how he goes from the grizzled veteran leader of X-Force and former co-leader of the New Mutants to basically being a G-golly, G-wiz, wide-eyed novice in the X-Men. Sometimes that actually works out really well. Here, it's not great.
1: So we've met back up with, with Hannah Conover, who first appeared in that uncanny arc. Um, And now there's another character who, again, came from there, that is Josie Thomas. She was the one who infected Hannah, and she is there to meet the Firstborn when they crash in the Grand Canyon. So the deal with the Firstborn is that they're basically extra hardcore brood. They can't infect people, they are purely soldiers, they are made to fight and kill, and they're not expecting to return, like they will. the last stage of their mission is to die.
0: Yeah, and unlike the brood that we've been familiar with, especially the brood in that last arc of Uncanny, the Firstborn can't transform. Because they can't infect people, in part, they always look like brood. And especially badass brood, they're like brood with armor plates instead of just their standard insect-like carapace. They look pretty cool.
1: Yeah, they're they're hardcore brood. I really enjoy the this i i love the addition of this because the brood are a hive culture and seeing more hive roles is i think a really interesting development
0: i agree yeah and also just seeing different manifestations of this type of horror because of course the brood are based on the xenomorphs from the alien series like that that much is very very clear And part of what makes the xenomorph scary is that when someone gets implanted with a xenomorph egg, you don't really know it right away, and maybe they don't really know it right away. It's a little different with the brood, because the brood can sort of animate people and transform back and forth between being more human and more broody. And the firstborn can't do that. They are the brood with no subtlety. They're a very different type of horror. And I wanted to get your take on this, Jay. Like, do you think that is less scary, more scary, or just differently scary?
1: I think it's, I think, I think they're creatures of a different genre. It's the difference between alien and aliens. One is a horror movie, one is an action movie.
0: That's actually a really good way of putting it. I was going to say they're less scary, but you're right. Yeah, it's just, they're different genres. And As Alien and Alien showed us, you can totally use the same kind of creatures in different genres. Same with Terminator and Terminator 2, for that matter.
1: I've ever actually seen Terminator.
0: The first Terminator is a great horror movie. I highly, highly recommend it. I mean, it's from the past, so I'm sure there's some stuff that has not aged very well. I haven't seen it in a while. But it's just a really good, like, straightforward, low-budget, but effectively done horror movie. Cool. Well, anyway...
1: Anyway, Scott and Jean manage to intervene in time to keep the Firstborn from killing Hannah and some of her broodlings along with some cops, and the X-Men in turn intervene in time to keep the Firstborn from killing Scott and Jean.
0: It's a good thing those cops don't actually get names other than one of them calling the other Sarge. Otherwise, toast.
1: So this is followed by a long fight, which has one of the continuity issues that really bothers me, which is that people keep on saying and acting like Scott's visor is either gone or catastrophically broken when it is clearly not in the artwork.
0: I mean, I I think I saw a little crack on it once. Maybe it maybe it got hit in the exact wrong place.
1: I don't know, but it it reads very, very oddly. And it there there's a lot that to me feels like the God, the dialoguing feels. And this is this is entirely projection. It feels like it was done like one page at a time without seeing the the surrounding pages. Like it it almost kind of feels like an, a game of exquisite corpse. <laughs> uh,
0: do you remember that version of that we used to play at home? Actually maybe you should explain what that is for people who don't know. So
1: exquisite corpse involves basically putting something together, putting together a piece of artwork or a story or pictures and captions without seeing what the other what other people involved have done.
0: Yeah, so, like, when we used to play at home, one person would draw a picture or write a caption, the next person would alternate, if it was a caption, they'd do a picture, or if a, a picture, they'd do a caption, and then fold over the first so the third person couldn't see it. And so you get this kind of game of telephone-developed story. It was really fun, and we did that, like, a lot back in the day.
1: But one of the things fundamental to it is that it, it, it doesn't allow for any kind of continuity that's not really free-associative, because what's there before isn't seen and this is this is one of several places in this where the dialogue feels specific to each page rather than to the story
0: i will say i don't think it detracts that much from the story i think this is a good story with some cool themes and it's a good x-men story in addition to being a good brood story but i agree had more attention been paid to that part it would be better
1: yeah i mean i don't think it kills the comic but it's it's such a noticeable issue that it's, it's hard to read through it without commenting on it, and it does affect how well it, it scans.
0: So, Jay, you mentioned that the Firstborn attacked Hannah and her broodlings. Let's talk a little bit about her broodlings and how they're portrayed, because they're interesting. So
1: these are the people whom Hannah has has healed by infecting them with the brood, and they've got a really interesting dynamic. They have the obvious hive loyalty, but they're also very clearly attached to her as humans who respect and value her a lot. And it's a potential direction for inside of the brood that we really haven't seen before. Something that's commented on explicitly at some points later on in the comic, but even even this early, it's very evident.
0: And this is cool, because we're seeing these brood-like traits turned around in a way that actually seems kind of positive. And, okay, I may be reaching, I'm just coming up with this as I'm saying it, but in a way, it almost reminds me of the... Comparison of uh, William, of William Conover, uh, the the priest-slash-minister in this story, and Reverend Stryker. I mean, we've seen that same level of intense, intense faith and dedication and proselytizing of that faith in both of them, but taken in completely polarly opposite directions.
1: Have we? Because I don't think Conover is a TV celebrity in the same way that Stryker is. Like, he's... He, his, his whole thing is on the road, and it gives the impression of being fairly grassroots.
0: I guess so, but the revivals that he holds—and uh, any Christians who are listening, I apologize for probably getting all of these terms wrong. I'm not very familiar with Christianity. But the events that he holds— Seem very well attended. Like there seem to be hundreds of people there, which I realize that's not a TV audience, but he still is, you know, a person speaking to the masses. Yeah,
1: he is less polished than Stryker, which I think is something that lends to lends him a lot of humanity. So, going going back to to Hannah Conover, Logan immediately wants to kill her. Jean objects. Actually, everyone else objects, and Jean in particular says Hannah's still herself. She's just also kind of a brood queen. This is this is Logan's first line response to threats a lot of the time. I mean, we saw this with Rachel. We saw this with, we've, we've seen this, you know, on and off with Phoenix.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I don't know, on the one hand, I get it because Logan has been around the brood a lot. He's been around them, I think, every time they've showed up in X-Men comics. And so he gets that once somebody's infected by the brood, that's it. It's like when someone, you know, becomes a zombie in a zombie movie, you have to consider them to already be dead. But at the same time, Logan has recovered from a brood infection not once, but twice. Also, some of us
1: have seen warm bodies.
0: I've never seen warm bodies. Is it good? You would love it. Oh, well, excellent. I just finished Ted Lasso, which was delightful, so I could start another thing, maybe.
1: It's it's a movie, not a TV show.
0: Way less commitment, even better.
1: Well, Cyclops points out to Wolverine that he has less of a leg to stand on here than he might have otherwise.
0: Scott says,
1: You've been losing your own fight for your humanity, Logan. What do we do when you go completely feral? Hunt you down? Kill you? If you
0: think you can... Oh, right, I forgot, Logan's got that new font, so...
1: Nobody's quite sure what to do at this point. Hannah's broodlings don't trust the X-Men to defend her, and Hannah figures that she needs to die for the good of the world, and that brings us to X-Men vs. Brood Day of Wrath Part 2.
0: Written once again by John Ostrander, penciled by Brian Hitch and Sal Valudo, inked by Paul Neary, Andy Lanning, and Harry Candelario, colored by Shannon Blanchard and Tom Vincent, and lettered by Richard Starkings, and Comicraft. So, every comic can be someone's first, so of course this issue opens with a recap of what happened last time, but it's actually done pretty organically. There's a recap from the cops reporting what happened in issue one that they saw to William Conover, which actually is part of the story because he didn't know that before. And as Conover responds to this recap, we learn that Uncanny X-Men number 234 was about a year ago in Comics Time. That was a comic published a full eight years before this one. So for anybody trying to do calculations of how Comics Time works at home, just give up. There's, There's no point.
1: Yeah, every bit of solid data you get will immediately be contradicted by something else.
0: The world is meaningless and truth doesn't exist. Anyway, William's very polite to the cops and he's very polite to God in asking for help, understanding what's going on. And again, as we see William on his own, I think this is the first time we see him on his own very much without Hannah there as well. He is just 100% sympathetic. Like, I can't think of any negative traits that this character has whatsoever. Like, I'm not religious, and he is, okay, but like, I wish all religious people were exactly like William Conover. He's just a really fucking good dude. He just wants to do the right thing and understand what that thing is, and he's completely open to new experience and change, and I love him.
1: Yeah, he seems like a remarkably decent person, and and we'll see more that, that reinforces that as we go through this. Now, Hannah, who's also a very decent person, has at this point decided that what she needs to do is convince the X-Men to kill her, which she tries to do by way of yet another br- uh, recap, this time going over the brood part of the equation.
0: Yeah, this stuff from Uncanny 232 to 234. Uh, she doesn't specifically bring up the amazing cover to Uncanny 234, which is that purple and green looking one where Logan has fallen to his knees in agony because he's half brood. I love that cover so much. It's one of my favorite comics covers of all time.
1: It's a very, very, very good cover. And again, you can you can listen to our coverage of those issues in episode 95.
0: Logan is all about this murder plan. He's uh, also frothing at the mouth with his claws popped. Like we said, he's going feral and is possibly drunk.
1: Fuck's sake, Logan.
0: The thing is, I'm not saying he's wrong. I mean, okay, in the plot, ultimately, he will be proved to be wrong. But, like, I can see where he's coming from. But, dude, like... Please chill. Maybe you could just sort of nod gravely and give
1: Hannah a firm handshake before impaling her? No, he's he's wrong. He's wrong even at this point. He's wrong for a lot of reasons. As Storm points out, you know, you don't really get to decide which lives are worth saving, but also you've got the team telepath saying definitively that, no, this is a different situation.
0: Yeah, that's fair. And honestly, it's a little weird that... Jean isn't more immediately able to convince Logan of that. I mean, he's always listened to her, but I don't know, at the same time, maybe that's just a way of showing just how far that animalistic progression has progressed in him, that even Jean can't fully break through to him, at least not right away.
1: Of all of the characters in this, he he's the one who feels the least plausibly written relative to his his contemporary portrayal, you know, at the time that this was coming out.
0: Honestly, him being a hard-ass who adheres to sort of what he believes has been right in the past more than the present situation, he seems a little more like Bishop than like Wolverine.
1: Yeah, exactly, and Bishop is, is kind of neutral, but Bishop also brings up a really fascinating point. This is something I desperately want to see developed at some point in continuity.
0: Yes, there were reports of Brood in the future, but there were also legends of more than one kind— Is Hannah Kahn over the start of that legend?
1: I love this. I love this idea. I want to see more comics about this.
0: Seriously. I mean, and we'll get to this, but like you mentioned earlier, Jay, Hannah does go back to being a new type of dangling plot thread. So I'm just saying, Marvel, this would be really cool. I want to see where this goes. I mean, I'm not saying you have to call it Brood War because that name is already taken by the expansion to the first Starcraft, but uh, it could be like that. I guess you don't need Sarah Kerrigan; she's copyrighted.
1: Just putting it out there that there is a specific team who has a lot of first-hand experience with the Brood, but a very different frame of reference from the main X-Men, who are really perfectly positioned to to kind of be be at the front line of this.
0: We will bring those Brood X-Men up every single time we possibly can. Well, no, not
1: not the X, not the X-Men who are who are Brood, the X-Men who were Brood, and, the X-Men who are the Brood, the, the clones of the X-Men who've been. It neglected in space since like 1983.
0: It's just a little quicker to say Brutex men is all. I love them. I love them so much. Well,. Anyway, after we hear some more justifications for why Hannah shouldn't die, like Beast hopes that they could do some research on her to maybe help future brood victims, Sam knows that God doesn't like suicide and that she's a believer, the X-Men pair off into groups of two to track down Hannah, because she has fled, asking her broodlings to hold off the X-Men, but not hurt them in the meantime.
1: Which they do, which again kind of speaks to how different her broodlings are from the standard model.
0: Seriously. So, the X-Men Break Free, they had after her. Although I do love that Beast can't track Hannah, but he can track Logan, who's tracking Hannah, because Logan has, as we have established in our podcast canon, here it is established in 616 canon, Logan has started forgetting to bathe.
1: God damn it, Logan.
0: He's a short, hairy man that smells terrible and talks like he's drunk. Thanks, 1995, 1996, etc. He's
1: getting more like his namesake with every passing day.
0: (laughs) Wolverine. Actual Wolverine.
1: No, that's Jonathan.
0: Oh, that's true. Wolverine. Actual drunk Wolverine who's not Jonathan because Jonathan's great and Logan at this point is not. Anyway. Anyway... So we were talking about how actually maybe everybody's kind of a good guy. Hannah's got her motivations, the broodling have their motivations, the X-Men have their motivations. Well, the Firstborn are totally bad guys. And as Hannah is found by her broodlings and talks about how she's hoping that if she dies, maybe they'll at least be safe from the Firstborn, well, suddenly it's the Firstborn.
1: We the readers know that this isn't correct. Part of the Firstborn's mission is to kill everyone she's infected as well
0: or even come into contact with. And, all oh, the art during this fight is so much fun. Hitch is a great choice for this story. Hannah's broodlings change from their human forms to their partial brood forms, which are humanoid, but they have, like, giant needle teeth and claws and tentacles bursting out of their clothes like they're the incredible Xeno Hulk.
1: Hey, remember how I mentioned dialogue continuity issues?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, this part. Uh, take it away, Jay.
1: So, something like three times over the course of this extended sort of multi-part fight, we see what we are told are the last of the Hannah's broodlings getting killed. And then, like, a couple pages later, the dialogue will be like, Oh wait, there were a couple more after all. this happens multiple times... Yeah, there's even a bit of character
0: dialogue where one of the X-Men's like, "Wait, I thought all your broodlings died," and Hannah's like, "Oh, uh, no, these are the last ones for real." It's distracting and very strange.
1: Yeah, it's 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 not it's not good. That 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 part is 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 pretty bad.
0: <laughs> it's not ideal. Thankfully, in the midst of this somewhat confusing fight. Hannah's prayers for a way to stop the firstborn from killing everyone are answered, and oh, this narration.
1: The answer does indeed come from above. In the form of a snarling, claw-bearing attack from what must be the strangest angel that God ever sent. Wolverine.
0: I mean, I don't know, the Old Testament had some very strange angels. Maybe
1: they mean he's strange by angel standards, and that, you know, for instance, he only has two eyes.
0: Oh, yeah, and no wings at all, and no fire at the moment. Right,
1: right. Like, he's strange as an angel. It's not that he's strange by by standards of, like, general appearance.
0: I guess we're pretty strange by angel standards as well.
1: Well, if we were angels, we'd be strange angels.
0: Hmm. Wonder how Warren Worthington applies. I mean, we did learn in the Chuck Austin run that he kind of is a literal biblical angel, sort of.
1: No, he's not. He does everything like a hawk.
0: Hmm. Hawk Angel. Anyway, all the X-Men arrive. Big fight. Brood Cobra versus X-Mongoose.
1: Iceman tries to freeze a dying now human broodling to slow his death. Doesn't work. And finally, um, I think Storm tosses Hannah to Cannonball, who takes her and gets the hell out of there, pursued by the brood. She literally tosses
0: Hannah up in the air for Cannonball to catch. It reminded me so much of that fight from the Spider-Man X-Men Marvel team-up thing with the Hellfire Club, where they were just tossing J. Jonah Jameson all around the room to keep him away from the bad guys.
1: The angriest tacky sack.
0: (laughs) J. Jonah Jameson, put that on your business card. Stop looking at me that way. Okay, okay, I'm leaving!
1: His son is a werewolf. In space. With a sword. Anyway, the good guys
0: start to think about Iceman's failed attempt to save the dying broodling. Like, maybe they can freeze Hannah until they can de-broodify her, so the brood will then think Hannah's dead and will leave Earth alone. Logan still wants to kill Hannah, figuring that's the only way, but Cyclops is Cyclops.
1: We've never taken the easy path before. We have always been governed by what's right. Logan, you know the meaning of honor.
0: I know it's cost, too. On the other hand, I've never done things nice and easy. So why should I flame and start now?
1: Said well, but not quite as well as the time that Hawkeye said, difficult for myself? I was born difficult for myself. <laughs> oh, Clint. So the firstborn chase Hannah, and instead of Hannah, they find William, who saw all of the explosions from afar and drove out to the desert hoping to find his wife. And they decide, well... Makes for a very, very good hostage.
0: Hannah senses this because she can kind of telepathically communicate with all the brood, including the firstborn. And she goes full brood form herself, knocks Cannonball out, and leaves to go save her man from the monsters. Despite herself also kind of being a monster. She looks really freaking cool like she's brood but she has her own badass bone plate armor over her head crest her forearms her claws and her tail because she's a fucking brood queen right but like she also looks different than brood queens we've seen i appreciate that she looks unique and she realizes how she looks i mean when she gets to the hostage situation when she gets to the firstborn holding her husband hostage she talks to him
1: Do you see what I've become, William? The devil I am? Do you understand why I couldn't tell you? And William's response is so sweet.
0: I don't understand how this happened to you, Hannah. But didn't you know I would stand by you no matter what? We took vows to love and cherish each other, in sickness and in health. Do you think I made them lightly? Did you have no faith in me?
1: Oh, I love my weird alien space wife.
0: He is just totally cool about this whole thing. Again, William Conover is just
1: perfect. He has
0: zero negative qualities.
1: He's great. This is, again, this is ridiculous, but it's also just a really sweet scene. Dude, Miles, Miles, what if she just stayed that way and they just lived their lives and the ministry got really weird? That is...
0: That's one of the most charming things I've ever heard of, and certainly one of the most insect-person-filled. Yeah. Inhumanity, or in Xeno, parasitization. Put that in your vows, everyone.
1: Do it. You never know when it's going to become relevant.
0: Hmm. Hannah, unfortunately, is losing this fight. She may look badass, but these are the firstborn. Like, these are four brood who are sent to take care of exactly this kind of situation around the galaxy.
1: Fortunately, the X-Men show up just in the nick of time, and there's a big fight that lasts for a really long time, and during that fight, Jean telepathically explains the plan to William, that they're gonna, you know, they're gonna freeze Hannah, um, it's, it's gonna be okay, she can't know, because if she knows the brood will, but like, they're trusting him to be her medical proxy here, I guess?
0: Well, I also really appreciate that Gene specifically tells William what's going on. Like, it's not the smartest thing to do, because they don't really know William. I mean, he could very well ruin the entire plan by telling Hannah what's going on or trying to stop them. But Gene understands what it is to be that dedicated to your partner, and that a really, really good partner would put their partner's needs over even being truthful if that was necessary.
1: And Jean knows what it's like to have a man who will stand by you when you spontaneously grow tentacles. Oh yeah, she did
0: grow tentacles one time, and and Scott was pretty cool about it. Scott was real chill about it. Yeah. Well done, Jean and Scott. And William and Hannah, I guess.
1: Well, or when you're possessed by a monstrous alien life form.
0: Oh, well, yeah, there's that. I mean, okay, technically she wasn't possessed, but you know what, let's not get into the Dark Phoenix thing right now. Too complicated. The point is... It works. All Hannah knows is that she feels like she's gradually fading away because, you know, she's gradually being frozen. And it's kind of a beautiful scene. She starts reciting the Lord's Prayer, thinking that she's dying. And once she's far enough gone to not be able to keep saying it, William takes over and finishes. And it's it's kind of beautiful. Like, I mean, I've, I've mentioned a number of times I'm not a religious person, but just the sense of peace— That this ritual brings this couple each in their own way is a truly beautiful thing.
1: It is, yeah. Um, let me get back to that in a little bit, but going on, the Firstborn figure that their mission is complete, so they just kill each other to tie up loose ends.
0: Problem solved. I mean, okay, technically shouldn't they have killed all the X-Men and William because they were witnesses? You know what, whatever, it's fine, it's a nice clean ending to the story, I'll take it.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm not too concerned about that. And William promises to pray until Hannah's okay again. Um, so, we know what he's been up to for the last 25 years, because the X-Men take her home to the mansion. Um, and say that, you know, they're gonna put her in a stasis chamber and they'll maybe send her to Muir Isle. She hasn't appeared in a comic book since, y'all. Right. We know that the
0: mansion is going to be fully cleaned out of all technology by Bastion during Operation Zero Tolerance. So I guess maybe Bastion has her? Or if the X-Men did send her to Muir Isle, well, Muir Isle got blown up by the Brotherhood of
1: Evil Mutants a while after that. So, Hannah, where are you? Yeah, so that that plot thread just kind of dangles. Uh, We do close with a a close-up Jesus panel, though.
0: Yeah, we do. There's this sort of um, sermon by William about faith and trust and, and stuff, and it's it's nice. I, I don't know that it specifically relates to the story. Like, honestly, I don't know that I'm the right person to have much of a perspective on this just because I I, I don't have a lot of perspective on, on religion. But I don't know, Jay, did it seem extraneous
1: to you? I have really mixed feelings about this. I think in a vacuum it works really well. I think religion is central to these two characters. I think it plays a central role in their choices and in, in who they are. And I think it's absolutely appropriate in that, in that. The thing that feels a little weird to me about this is reading it and realizing that I cannot imagine a story with that shape and with, with religion playing that particular role comparably getting okayed with any religion other than Christianity.
0: Right, and the thing is, I don't think this story is very Christianity-specific. It's absolutely about faith, but I think that faith could kind of be in any direction for at least a monotheistic religion and still be fully intact thematically.
1: Oh yeah, you can drop in the Shema for the Lord's Prayer. It's no problem.
0: Absolutely. But yeah, you're right, it's hard to imagine... A story back in the '90s, or hell, maybe even today, going that hard in a religious direction for many other religion. I mean, I don't know. I'd love to be surprised.
1: Yeah, I think there's a, a narrative and cultural sense of Christianity as as neutral that you don't really see with other religions um, in in the U.S. and U.S. media, and it's worth examining. But overall, yeah, I, I I don't have a problem with with the way it works. In this, I have a problem with the larger context in which it sits.
0: I feel like that's a place we come to a lot in the podcast, especially with stories in the 90s. It's like, this story is probably fine, but the fact that everybody keeps doing this story is a little weird.
1: So, a lot about X-Men is a little weird, and that is why you, our listeners, have questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Have you ever considered doing a one-off episode or special on X-Men 2099 to explain whatever the hell was going on there?
0: Ah, asking for a peek behind the X-Curtain, are
1: you? So, first of all, anonymous listener, it's bold of you to assume that we'd only need one.
0: (laughs) But seriously, I don't know about you, Jay. I I think about this kind of thing a lot because there is so much X stuff out there. And of course, we don't cover all the X stuff, even in the central line. Like, we don't cover the solo books, for instance, Cable and Wolverine and X-Man. It's a different question, though, for the spin-off books that are definitely X-relevant, but mostly seem to be doing their own thing. So I'm thinking of, yeah, X-Men 2099, absolutely. Exiles will start being a thing in our current era. x will be later. And they're not directly relevant to continuity, which, of course, is the main thing we cover. But they're still kind of cool, and there's still some X-connections.
1: Well, and ultimately, the rule of what we cover that that, that kind of trumps everything, is that we cover what we feel like covering.
0: Yeah, I mean, basically that.
1: So, for instance, we are definitely going to be covering Mutant X.
0: I've never read Mutant X, I'm very excited. But that also brings up another question, is when we do something like this, whether it's Mutant X or hypothetically X-Men 2099, how do we do it? I mean, I'm thinking about when we covered all of the pre-X-Caliber Captain Britain stuff in two episodes way back in the day, episode 97 and 98... That was fun, but that was really, really, really a lot of work, so I don't know.
1: Yeah, when we do that kind of thing, when we do that much coverage in in one episode, it ends up having to be much more tightly scripted than we usually work from, which isn't our ideal way to work. So, I mean, I'd I'd love to cover X-Men 2099. I suspect it's going to be more than an episode's worth of coverage.
0: Yeah, or, I mean, we could just discuss it more informally, which, again, is a little different than how we do things, but that's possible. But I'll tell you what, Jay— before we even worry about any of those titles, let's... let's get through Onslaught. If we must. An anonymous listener on Tumblr would like to know what Gambit's trench coat is made of.
1: Okay, so I checked with Excalibur writer Teenie Howard, who is... is who's currently got Gambit in her roster, and she says that it is, it is an Australian Outback-style oilcloth duster.
0: I've always wondered... What the hell is oilcloth? Like, I've seen the word a million times in fantasy novels, and it sounds super gross. I mean, I feel like if you're wearing oilcloth, you would leave stains every time you sat down or leaned against a wall.
1: No. So oilcloth is a catch-all term. It refers to a bunch of types of fabric that are waterproofed on one side. So traditionally, the fabric is either cotton duck or linen. I think the first oilcloths were actually made out of sailcloth. And the waterproofing is done with a mix of linseed oil and wax, but there are a lot of different ways to make it work. No, it's not greasy at all. It's a little leathery and very tough, and it's got a distinct, um, a kind of distinct smell that Teenie says is definitely part of what Gambit smells like. So, you know, you heard it here.
0: So, definitely not black leather or vinyl, which I assume is why we did not see Gambit in Days of Future Present.
1: Maybe he was there, but he was just really stealthy.
0: I mean, those metal boots do grant a plus-four to stealth. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. It's the angry Claremontian narrator, clad in oilcloth.
1: Oh, Eben. All that work. All those carefully laid plans and cunning machinations, ruse after ruse, con after con, And to what end? Ivy Hagedorn remains exactly where you left her. And every bit as useless. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in New Fairfield, Connecticut, in exile from Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com.
0: New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at ExplainTheXMen.com.
1: Check out ExplainTheXMen.com for original illustrations and visual companions to every episode.
0: Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air for another seven years, and ad-free for another seven years, check out the Patreon link at the top of ExplainTheXMen.com.
1: Next week, it's Hawk Talk, but in two weeks, all the externals are gonna die. To our immense relief. I'm sorry, (laughs) stop thinking about John James. (laughs)
0: oh man yeah matt if you're not familiar j jenna jameson's son is indeed a werewolf all of with the a sword things we just space. said about him are true yeah. i think he found like a funny space necklace when he was being a nasa astronaut when he was on and... the moon yeah so yeah, he's, he's
1: so... a snow white werewolf um with a big sword
0: as as happens <laughs>
1: it's a whole thing was that from a spider-man story i guess i don't fucking know. Oh, comics.